October 10, 2010, lecture discussion number 18 on the book of Romans. <coughs> Excuse me. Hopefully, uh, this evening we can knock out our two lists. We got a list on this side, Joshua 10, list on the other side, Joshua 9, and the relationships between the two of them. And actually, I'm going to do a lot of it today, uh, and I hope that you can find it when I do it. The reason that we're comparing Joshua 9 and 10 is obvious, I hope at least, because they are two chapters that comprise one whole. So they're two halves of a single story. So you have the first half of the, and the second half, you put the two stories together and you notice the, the contrast and the comparisons. They're also the second half of a three-part saga. The first part being, in my, the way I describe it, of course, the first part being in Genesis 34, the Dinah incident. And this is the second chapter, if you will. And the second chapter is in Joshua 9 and 10 and divided into 9 and 10. So eventually we get to the third chapter, which is where? That's right. It's in Second uh, Samuel 21. Some will say there's a fourth chapter, I say there's an epilogue, and we'll get to that as the time comes. That's the registry of Ezra um, and the Nehemiah wall. And for those who have missed the last uh, few lectures, um, uh, we have been choosing items from each of these lists that uh, I've uh, put on the board. Uh, They're essentially the dissection of chapter 9 and chapter 10 in one word elements, and there's quite a few of each of them. And we've been comparing them to one another and seeing if they're different or if they're, if they're the same. And we're doing that in order to gain the intended full insight and understanding of this second chapter or the second piece of the three-piece Gibeonite saga. And actually, for those who keep track of some things, we've really progressed quite a ways uh, through that list. Actually, we have addressed almost all of it in one form or another. I've done it somewhat subtly, and that's the way I always do it. But if you start to really look at it, you'll notice that we have touched every single item at some point. And we are thus pretty much left with just a few things now. Let me flip it back over to uh, uh, number nine or chapter nine, because that's where most of them seem to be. And what we have left is really this covenant oath portion, the servant portion. Uh, They make peace or they make a covenant, and they say that all the time, make peace or make a covenant and curse. Now there's also another one I didn't have that's in Joshua 10. But those four are pretty much all we've got on that side. On this side, um, we can add the five kings that are hung so let me put hung out here. I did these are hanged, if you will. Hanged is probably better. So we'll add hang to that. But you'll see the same thing. Again, we have the Gibeonites making peace. So that's, that's there as well. Made peace or made a covenant is constantly referred to. We're going to touch on mighty today a little bit. So we'll knock that out. But that's an important word. Whenever you see mighty, you stop and pay attention to it. Because where do we go when we see mighty? Well, Genesis 6. That's where we go. So uh, we're going to knock out, and most of it we've already gotten. We've gotten the, the come quickly to save us and the fear and all of that, and I hope you recognize it, even though I've done it pretty quickly and, as I said, somewhat subtly. And I expect that we're going to get through all of them today. I wrote that. That's on page one. And then I wrote 14 pages, and I only got through one. Actually, not true, totally true. I kind of got through all of them in a way, but not, not the way you would hoped. Uh, and I wrote perhaps not hanged, but I actually did hanged. So it surprised me as I wrote it uh, because I didn't expect to do hanged. Hang sends us to uh, Rizpah at Second Samuel 21. Who's read, who's read ahead? Nobody. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. For the record, those of you on the internet that do wonderful things and they astonish me sometimes. I got a call the other day telling me how astonished they were at what's going on on iTunes with us. It's amazing what we're doing there, what's happening there to our little band of Indians. Uh, needless to say, they, are, they far outnumber us. It isn't even close. And, and they read ahead. They, they're, they're, they're the good students. 
<laughs> but if you have read ahead or if you have studied Rizpah, and I have done it before at Second Samuel 21, you'll notice that she is one. Uh, and we need to read that, by the way, because that's the last chapter, if you will, of the Gibeonite saga, also called the Honored Oath, also called the Devoted Ones or the Devoted Persons by theologians. Uh, they're sometimes so titled all three of those. So the Gibeonite saga, I'm going to have to claim that as my own because I've not found it anywhere else. And I, I think it best describes it. Mostly you'll see the devoted persons or the honored oath, as I said. Anyway, Rizpah is chasing away birds from hanged people. That's what she's doing in 2 Samuel 21. And that naturally makes the student of Scripture do what? You've got hanged people in Joshua 10. You have hanged people in 2 Samuel 21. Both of those are part of the Gibeonite saga. And so what should I do to figure out what hanging means? What do I do? I put them side by side, absolutely true, and I compare them. And then if I can't figure out what it's trying to tell me, what do I do next? I go everywhere in the Old Testament, first and foremost, because it's obvious where it is in the, in the New Testament. But I go everywhere in the Old Testament, and I find everyone who has been hung from a tree, and I compare them all. Who's the most prominent hang from a tree in the New Testament? You're, you, you have your choice, really. They'll argue over prominent, but I'll tell you, the most prominent, of course, is Christ himself. And then Judas would be second, wouldn't he? Judas understood hanged by a tree. By the way, the most popular uh, sermon, apparently, that I do on the Internet is a Judas position lecture. Uh, um, and uh, some of the feedback, I got a call, like I said, and somebody said, I'm looking at all these Judas position sermons. How many did you do? Lots. Lots. There's maybe 50 of them on there on Judas position. And those are, are by far the most popular now, apparently. Romans hasn't caught up by any means. Anyway, Rizpah chases away birds in 2 Samuel 21 of people that have been hung, and she does not want those birds to eat them. Uh, they take the obviously pluck the eyes out immediately, and she also wanted to protect the, uh, the bodies from the beasts. But I want to just focus on chasing away the birds, because birds have tremendous uh, symbolism in Scripture. And that makes the student of Scripture uh, immediately search for other places in the Bible where someone has chased off birds. Where is the most prominent place where somebody chases off birds in all of the Old Testament? Abraham did it. Where did he do it? Oh, no. The teacher gets a beating. Because the most prominent in the Old Testament is Abraham during the Abrahamic covenant process in Genesis 15. How many sermons did I do on Genesis 15? I think it's 120. Every Sunday for 120 sermons, we did Genesis 15. Now, we'll take a little look here and watch what happens. How many of you were here for Genesis 15? Okay. Six or seven of you. How many better? How many were not? Look at that. 120 sermons is two years of Genesis 15. And most of the people weren't here. That's what Genesis 15 does to congregations right there. <laughs> but most prominent is Abraham. He chases the birds away from the severed bodies. That's one of his jobs is to run off the vultures. And so you see that being reproduced in Rizpah in 2 Samuel 21. And we should expect anything that contains the Gibeonites and therefore circumcision because you cannot separate circumcision from the Gibeonites. They're locked together because of Genesis 34. We should expect that that's going to lead us back to Genesis Genesis 15 at some point. How come? Because Genesis 15 is the Abrahamic covenant. That is the lamp and the furnace passing through the severed bodies. The lamp, of course, uh, being the mercy of God and the furnace being the judgment of God. And that is this 
impossible to resolve the collision between God's infinite love and his infinite justice colliding, trying to find a solution. Because his love says none should perish. His judgment says all should perish. How can I resolve that? I have two infinite forces. How do I get a solution? How do I get something that's a solution out of that collision? And of course, as you know, that's what's happening at the Mount of Gethsemane when Christ says, not my will, but your will be done. That same thing is happening in Genesis 15. You have to understand uh, Genesis 15 to understand what Christ is doing at Gethsemane. It's called a theotic, I'm sorry, a dramatic theodicy. Well, anyway. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So I would expect Rizpah and something to do with the Gibeonites to be chasing away birds. Somebody's got to chase away birds. And there it is in 2 Samuel 21. And you see it mirrored by Abraham in Genesis 15. So maybe we get there today. Maybe not. Probably not. Quite a bit to tidy up with made peace, make a covenant, your servants, cursed and hanged. That's where we are today. Those elements in the two lists of Joshua 9 and 10. And once again, I get to pick. And you know what allows me to pick whatever I want because I have, I have the, the holy most high by race line. And so the possessor of that gets to pick whatever he wants. And I opt for cursed. Because cursed is an extraordinary mystery. I hope you I hope you like it. Remind me to turn that on when I leave the podium. Because if I don't, Jonas can't hear himself and he will panic. And we can't allow that. Turn on monitor. Who can remember that? Who will be awake? And remind me to turn on monitor for Jonas. Okay, we'll try it. But I'm going to choose cursed because, as I said, it's extraordinary. It's, it's shockingly extraordinary. I hope it is that way for you. It has been that way for me. And, uh, and again, I, I just wish that you would have the same response that I had when I first uh, uh, found it in Scripture and found those who had found it before me. By the way, something you should know. Um, if you can't find somebody else who has your opinion on a verse in Scripture, you're probably in trouble. And I get that from a wonderful theologian named Ada Ruth Habershon who said, if there's anything original, it's probably worthless. In other words, God's, God's word is His word and He reveals it. And if you're the only one that has a particular interpretation, oops, you should be scared of yourself. And if you're not scared of yourself, then you're in really big trouble. Then you're what? You're a teenage boy. That's right. And then that's big trouble. You don't know and you don't know that you don't know. Anyway, mainly for reasons that I'm choosing curse that may not seem obvious to the shallow reader. Uh, and I don't want you to be shallow readers. And But some may object that cursed from Joshua 9 does not show up in Joshua 10. They'll see it in Joshua 9. There it is. It's item numbered uh, N, for those of you who follow along. And they come over here to Joshua 10, and they do not see cursed. That's why I wrote it on there. It really is. Joshua, uh, cursed is certainly in Joshua 10. But it most, um, as I said, it most certainly is in Joshua 10. It's obvious because of Deuteronomy 21:23 and Galatians 3:13, and and so what is corresponding to cursed from Joshua 10? It again Deuteronomy 21:23 and Joshua or Galatians 3:13. What did I say? Did I say Galatians 3:13 last time? I wrote it wrong on my paper here. What is Galatians 3:13? It's famous first. You need to know it. Cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. And that's applied to Christ. But here I have five kings who are hanging from trees and they clearly are cursed. So back I go. I have the Gibeonites cursed and I have the five kings cursed. So what is the relationship then between the cursed Gibeonites 
and the hanged cursed kings. The five kings, they must have some fit together, two halves to a whole, right? Obviously, the Gibeonites are cursed because Joshua tells them they are, and the five kings are cursed. Now, I know you probably haven't read <coughs> Joshua 9 or 10, and we're going to do that here in a minute, for especially those who are just catching up with us. Why are each one cursed? That's the mystery of Joshua 9. How is it that the Gibeonites are cursed? Because they don't seem to be cursed. There doesn't seem to be a curse on the Gibeonites. What are they? They're saved, they're redeemed, they're honored, they're dedicated to temple service, they get to live. They're, they're powerful representatives in Scripture. How is that a curse? How is it that they're cursed? Now, who calls them cursed? Joshua calls them cursed. Who is he a type of? Well, his name means salvation. He's a type of Christ. Christ is calling the Gibeonites cursed. And we'll get to it in a moment. How is it that they're cursed? Once you start to ask that question, then the other questions start flying out. What should you do when you're going to try to solve? How is it that the Gibeonites are cursed? Or if you will, how is it that the five kings are cursed? They're hanging from a tree. What does cursed mean? How is it that the... Uh, how do I solve that? How do I find an answer? It's always the same way. How do I find an answer that tells me why it is the Gibeonites are considered cursed by none, none other than Joshua? How do I find an answer? What do I do? What do I do is I go find everybody else who's a curse. Who became a curse for us? Galatians 3.13. Christ did. Are the Gibeonites like Christ? Are the five kings like Christ? Adam curses the ground. The ground, I'm sorry. Adam causes the ground to be cursed. Genesis 3.17. Satan is cursed. Genesis 3.14. Christ curses one thing in all of the Bible, and that's what? A fig tree. So is it everybody who hangs from a fig tree is cursed? Did they hang these guys from fig trees? Or is it just a tree? Who is the fig tree? Most of the time it's Israel. Why would Christ curse Israel? Is he cursing the nation of Israel? Doesn't look like he is because the nation of Israel is restored, redeemed, goes through the millennium. They, they finally do their job. They are honored and restored. How's that a curse? Or is it just a temporary curse? Is he cursing what Israel teaches? What does Israel teach? Works-based theology. Why do they do that? Who else has done that? Who else has come before God with a works-based theology and is also cursed for it? Who's that? That's Cain. Does that. So go run around and find all, because Abel brought blood, right? Cain brought what? Fruits. What kind of fruits do you think he bought? He could bring anything, couldn't he? What do you think he brought? Why would he do that? Why would he? Now, he's in his 30s. Why would he, after all of those times that blood is brought and blood is accepted, what is he thinking? That he does not need to bring blood. And of course, as you know, it reveals its relevatory of his character. That's another story completely anyway. But here, the Gibeonites are pronounced by are pronounced cursed by Joshua, Yeshua himself. What could this mean? Why, how, when did the Gibeonites become cursed? And that's going to cause us to return to Genesis, Genesis 9.25 to be exact. And that is a great mystery in Scripture. Hardly anyone preaches on it. You first must dismiss the kids. It's a very difficult, very, very hard Scripture and hardly anyone, as I said, wants to deal with it. And therefore, what? It's one of my favorites. Plus, we're going to have to reread some of the applicable portions of Joshua 9 and 10. And so to remind everybody and help the, uh, the visitor. Do I have a visitor? No, I don't. I have infrequentables. I am those. But I'm going to have to reread that uh, so we can remind everybody what's going on, especially those who haven't been here for a while. And there are going to be more of them as they trickle in. 
this was the last possible day you could do anything construction-wise. There's no construction past today. Okay, that is very funny only to me and Jane and Lori. It's not funny to Mike and Catherine. But it's, or John, John's trying to build the largest doghouse in America. Some of you build sheds, but not John and not Mike. They build hotels and call them sheds, much to the consternation of their neighbors, who probably are listening to this right now, gaining evidence against the two of you. Anyway, I want you to consider, while I am going to go and read all these portions again, I want you to start thinking about the two federal heads of humanity again. That's only Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, and Adam. Only those two hold the title of federal head of humanity. And what they do, or what they have done, affects the entire creation. It affects mankind. It affects the living souls. It affects the nephesh kaya, which is living souls. It affects the ground. All of creation groans. And so I naturally would expect that the curse would be strongly attached to both Christ and Adam. Adam causes all of that to occur because he's the first federal head. Christ comes and fixes it as the second federal head. So are the last federal head or the last Adam or the second Adam as his titles. So I would expect curse to be involved with both of them. And it certainly is. Jesus Christ is typified in Numbers 21 as a what? He's lifted up. He's typified. If you'll just look at him, you will be saved from what? Numbers 21, I have Israel being bitten by what? Fiery snakes. Christ is typified as a snake, a bronze snake. They get. How do you get a bronze snake? Where do I get a bronze snake? Who's in charge of bronze snakes in Israel? Hey, today what we need, we got a bunch of people, they're being poisoned to death, they're all going to die. I have to have a bronze snake. And what are they being bitten by, by the way? Fiery snakes. So obviously they take a fiery snake and they do what with it? They bronze it. Throw it in bronzing, right? Pull it back out. Put it on a stick. And if you look at the bronze snake, it's lifted up. All you got to do, you're dying, you're poisoned, you're not going to make it, you're going to die. But all you got to do is look, how many people we got out there? Millions. How many have been bitten? Every one of them. By snakes. And Christ is typified. A picture of Christ is lifting him up and look at the bronze snake and you are healed instantly and you live. The poison from the snake is no longer affecting you. And the snake is what in Genesis 3.14? Cursed. So Christ is typified by a bronzed snake that is cursed. I would expect that because of Adam, right? And there's great theology there for those of you who think you can work your way to salvation. All you got to do is you can't even see the snake. It's miles away from you, the bronze snake. You can't see it. It's miles away from you. Word comes through the crowd, transferred to you. Look in the direction of the uplifted bronze snake and you will live. What do you got to do? I mean, what are my chances? I just got to look in the direction, right? I can't even see the direction. How much effort is taken from me? How much am I involved in my salvation process? Ooh. But don't get rid of that free will, baby. Now we're in another fight. Anyway, that's a very important place uh, in Scripture, dealing with curses and Christ dealing, being involved in a cursed element. Obviously, Galatians 3.13 is a New Testament complement to Numbers 21.9, the lifted up bronze serpent, and Christ is called, it becomes a curse for us. Those connect together, and that is explained further in Romans 5 and 6 for those who like to read ahead. Is there anyone here that likes to read ahead? I didn't think so. Okay, let's take out a few of these, uh, a few of these uh, scriptures. Joshua 9. I'm afraid my duct tape is beginning to fail me here. I may have to. And I can't. This is what I do to Joshua 9, see, and 10 over the years. And I hate to get rid of that because I can't transfer it. I found this particular commentator a lot of fun to argue with. I call him things that, that 
I would never say to him uh, if I met him. I wouldn't show him either, but that's another story. The commentary is never, is not inspired. Remember that. Okay, here we go. Joshua 9, it's the word that's inspired. Joshua 9, 22, 23. Then Joshua called for them, the Gibeonites, and he spoke to them saying, Why have you deceived us? We are very far from you. Why did you say that when you dwell near us? I've added a little bit in there for those of you who don't know the story. Okay. Now, therefore, you are cursed because you have lied to me. You are cursed. And none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua, the Gibeonites, as you know, they lied to Israel. They said they lived close to them. I'm sorry, they lived far away from them when they really dwelled very close. And God had said in Deuteronomy 7, kill everybody that's in the land. And so they lied about living in the land. They said they lived far away. That allowed them to go to Deuteronomy 21, right, where they could get a get some kind of... Uh, um, a peace agreement. And so they lied about how far away they lived. And Joshua called for them and brought them to him after he had said that they couldn't be killed. And he asked them, why have you deceived us by saying we are very far away when you dwell near us? Now, therefore, you are cursed and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. OK, then down to 26. So he did to them. They say in 25, now, we are here in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to us. So Joshua did to them and delivered them out of the hand of Israel so that they did not kill them. How is that a curse? That looks like a pretty good deal. I'm, you're cursed. You'll get to live. And I got you a civil servant job, good benefits, retirement, you know, weekends off. Got to carry a little water, got to cut some wood. But it's really kind of a cool job if you study what they ended up doing. By the way, you have a new title, The Devoted Persons. That sound like a curse to you? How's that a curse? You have to explain that. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Okay, now go to 10.8. Now, Joshua is ascending out of Gilgal, and he's going to defend them. And he's told this, because there's five kings. And the Lord says this. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. Don't fear the five kings, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. That's important, because how's God going to deal with the fact that somebody is surrounding his Gibeonites? He interferes. He comes and tells Joshua, we're going to wipe these guys out. They're not going to stand before you. I'm going to defend my Gibeonites. It's good to be a Gibeonite. Why are they called cursed by Joshua? See, it doesn't seem to make sense. And if it doesn't seem to make sense, then what's there? Something really cool is hidden there. So now go look at 25. 10.25 and 10.26. Now, after after they have slaughtered them, they have the five kings here. They pulled them out of the cave that they were hiding in. And Joshua does this. Then Joshua said to them, Israel, do not be afraid of these five kings. Why would he these? Why would Israel? They have slaughtered everybody. Why would they be afraid of these five kings? What's so special about these five kings? Who are these five kings? One's the king of Jehovah Jireh Salam, Jerusalem. Why would Israel be afraid of him? They just watched him get wiped out by rocks. I'm fighting with the guy, right? He gets hit with a rock. Cool. How many people in Israel died ever except in one place where they did disregarded God? But Israel doesn't die. Everybody goes back. That's a pretty cool army. You got, maybe, you, you know, they're slaughtering people without any casual. Nobody's even wounded. Why would they be afraid? You got to ask the obvious question. What is so scary about these guys? Who are they again? Where are we? We beware. Where to fight? It's in the promised land. Is there anything scary in the promised land? 
There's scary stuff there. What's scary? In fact, the first time they come to the promised land, we'll get to it in a minute, everybody doesn't want to go except who? Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else is afraid. What are they afraid of? Giants. We'll get to that in a minute. Joshua brings the nation of Israel to them and says, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterwards, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. These were very potent, powerful kings that scared people. They, they hid in a cave from Joshua. Okay? There's your story. You can figure that out really fast, I hope. Okay, now let's go to Numbers so you see how this all began. 13, 30, um, Numbers 13 through 14, 4. This is the first time the nation of Israel, the first generation. Notice the second generation is also afraid of these guys. There's a difference, though. Okay, we'll start verse 30 of 13 Numbers. Then Caleb, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let's go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him, the other ten spies, said this, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report out of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great stature. We saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and we were in their sight. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, if only we had died in the wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let's get a new leader and return to Egypt. Let's select a leader and return to Egypt. So they're going to throw out Moses. They're scared to death of these giants. They're scared to death of everybody that's in the land. They don't want to fight. And they do exactly what Egypt said would happen, the reproach of Egypt. Okay, finally, Genesis 9.24. I know this is a lot, isn't it? Just to get through cursed. Just to get through cursed. <clears throat> Genesis 9.24. Something really scary to most pastors. And so the first time I heard a pastor do Genesis and he skipped this, I went, okay, I will find out what's in here. So, Noah, 9.24, awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Obvious question, what had the younger son done to him? And Noah said this, then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Okay? That's called the curse of Noah. And there's a lot of it to, to figure out here, but everything that I have given you so far connects. But here's the curse of Noah. Hopefully, you start to begin, you've seen the relationship between uh, Genesis 9, 24 and 27, what I just read here. Actually, I went all the way to 29. That's the Noahic curse upon the son of Ham, Noah's grandson, which raises the obvious question. Hopefully you, you see that, the curse of Canaan, the curse on the son of Ham, the curse on the grandson of Noah, and you see the connection between that and Joshua 9.23. What's Joshua 9.23? That is where Joshua says to the Gibeonites, you are cursed. Do you see the question? If you see the connection, if you do, we can stop and go right to that pumpkin loaf. How many of you have made that connection? Don't raise your hands. Never raise your hands here. Okay, let's keep moving then. You see, the Gibeonites are who? Who are they? 
Where do they live? They're Canaanites. People are afraid of them. They're descendants of the cursed Canaan, son of Ham. And this is, as many of you are aware, is one of the great mysteries of, of Scripture. Why did Noah curse the son of Ham? Because the son of Ham did not do this to Noah. Who did it to Noah? Ham did it. It was Ham who committed this atrocious act against Noah. It was a heinous, vicious assault. But Noah doesn't curse Ham. He curses his own grandson, Canaan. Why does he do that? That, by the way, is the solution to 923 Noah. He says Canaan is going to be a servant. Do you see it now? Let's go over here. What do these guys say over and over and over again? What do they say? They're constantly repeating that. Did the Gibeonites understand the curse of Noah? Oh, yeah, they did. They got it. They put all the elements into it, but we'll get to it in a minute. Why did Noah curse Canaan? Canaan seems to be innocent here. He's not involved. Why is Canaan cursed? What? I'll ask it in a minute here. I'm going to get ahead of myself. The descendants of Japheth, they're going to be blessed. God will dwell. Think about that. God is going to dwell with the Shemites. Who are the Shemites? We call them the Semites now. That's where anti-Semitic comes from. Who are the Shemites? They're the Jews. God will dwell with the Jews. Did he dwell with the Jews? Absolutely he did. Christ walked among them. God walked among them. The Shekinah glory was in the temple. But the Canaanites, they're going to be servants. How come they're going to be servants? They're going to be servants. (coughs) Excuse me. One reason is, is because of Ham's hatred for his father Noah. This is an act of great hate here. Now, there's many discussions on what this act is, what Ham did to Noah. And if you have a position that he uncovered him and, you know, made him cold, you're not going to fit, you're not going to fit the history. Now, the Jews have a very strong opinion of what happened here. And it was a heinous, vicious, hateful, hateful vile act. Keep in mind that when this happens to Noah... He's 600 years old. He curses Canaan when he's 600 years old. What's the obvious question? How old's Ham? How old's Canaan? Is Canaan fully grown? I got an obvious question then. What's he look like? Again, why does Ham's son receive the curse? What is different about Canaan? Now, I've done Genesis 9 and Joshua 9 before, and obviously I have the position that returns Joshua, I'm sorry, Joshua 9, yes, exactly, and of course the king, the, the feet on the necks, and don't be afraid of the five kings who are hiding in the cave. i got another obvious question about that cave. What's my question? How big is that cave? How big a cave do these guys need? Why is everybody so afraid of them? Joshua's not afraid of them. These guys, the Israel had just seen their whole army wiped out and slaughtered, killed them all, nobody dies, and they're still afraid of these five guys in the cave. Joshua's not afraid. He takes them out, kills them all, and hangs them. No problem. And they're what? Who are the five kings? What are they? Who are they descendants of? Canaan, the cursed grandson. So I ask the question whenever I do this, uh, what is different about Canaan? And as I said, I have the position that returns all of this to Genesis 6, where Noah is described in Scripture. Let me go back and look, read it for you so you know it really fast, in case uh, most of you obviously weren't here. Uh, 
This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. The word perfect means tamen, or the word perfect comes from tamen, from which we get our contaminated. Noah was not contaminated. So what's the obvious question now? Who was contaminated and what were they contaminated with? And was Canaan contaminated? And if he was contaminated, how did he get contaminated? And is that why he was cursed? And that ends up being my position. But today we're not going to do that. There's no time to do that. It's a complicated journey, and I'll just wipe you all out, and there'll be nobody awake, and we can't do it. So today, notice, what I want you to notice is this servant of servants aspect. Canaan's going to be a servant of servant. Now go return back to Joshua 9, and, and look at that really fast. And Joshua 10, note the repeated references made by the Canaanites, also called Hivites, right? Also called Gibeonites. Notice the Gibeonites slash Hivites slash Canaanites always say the same thing. They say it. We are your servants. We are your servants. 9.8 of Joshua. Your servants. 9.9 of Joshua. We are your servants. 9.11 of Joshua. Because your servants were clearly told. 9.24 of Joshua. Do not forsake your servants. 10.6 Joshua. I have Canaanites that are calling themselves what? Your servants. Who's the your in the question? Or in the statement? Shemites. They're calling themselves the servants of the Shemites. Well, that's a fulfillment of the curse of Noah. How is it that these people, the Gibeonites, how is it that they came to a place where they were so willing to submit themselves to slavery, slavery to the Shemites of Israel, How'd they get that? Let's look at this again. Joshua 10.9. Let's read that. Gibeon, I'm sorry, 10.2. Gibeon, Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, because it was greater than Ai, and all of its men were mighty. They were all mighty. All of the men. I'll put it over here. It doesn't seem to be on the board. I leave some things off so that I can come back and show you. They were all of the men were mighty. Gibeon with a whole, a royal city, a great city. And when the word mighty, by the way, is applied to a Canaanite, where are you now? And you're back. That always gets my attention because of Numbers 13.30 and Genesis 6. So somehow these mighty, powerful men, very all of them, every one of them is the same. Every one of them is mighty. Every one of them powerful. Every one of them great. Great city. Incredible fighters. Every one of them very quickly decided to surrender and to accept essentially slavery. They don't want to fight. They don't want to run. They want to be slaves. That's extraordinary. What makes them do that? They are the cursed of Noah, and they know it. They are prophesied to be slaves, servants, exactly as Joshua says to them in Joshua 9.23. You are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves. They're cursed. And they go, yeah, we're cursed. And we're supposed to be servants. We're calling ourselves servants. We're your servants. We want to be servants. We're cursed. We're cursed servants. The curse then results or consists of and has its element of servitude and it's fulfilled here. Joshua takes those who were cursed by Noah and what does he do to them? He places them into temple service and they are henceforth, as I said earlier, called the devoted persons by the nation of Israel. It's a great honor. They are in the registry of Ezra. They are side by side with Nehemiah. And what's their job? What's their job, these cursed guys? What do they get to do? They're woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar, Joshua 9.27. What exactly is that? Joshua says to you, you're going to be a woodcutter and a water carrier. You're going to go, why? What do you need wood for? 
That's one of my I, that always makes me laugh. It just one of the great lines in a presidential debate is uh, John Kerry accused George Bush, Bush of, of owning a timber mill. Anybody remember that? And Bush, as if it was something bad that he had done it. And Bush looked puzzled and he said, I own a timber mill? Anybody want to buy some wood? And it made me laugh. And every time I see woodcutter, I think of that. I don't know why I'm just weird. But it made me laugh. They're woodcutters and they're water carriers. What's their job? What exactly is that job? Why does the altar need woodcutters? Why does the altar need water carriers? What is the water carrier and the woodcutter supposed to do? These are mighty, powerful fighting men. This is like taking the elite seals, except this would be like having Wilt Chamberlain as a Wilt, as an elite seal. You know, this is Chamberlain and Jabbar and Shaquille, right? Except probably not that small. And these guys are amazing, and we're going to make them water carriers and woodcutters. I imagine they're pretty good at it. And they want the job because they know something about themselves. What do they know? They're cursed and they're destined to be servants. Obviously, you need wood for what? What are you going to do with the wood? You can make something out of it. Little ducks, sell them in the church bazaar. Yeah, you're going to use it for fire. That's right. You're using it in the fire sacrifice. And what about the water? Same thing. The water is in the lava, and it also has to wash something away. What's there? There's so much of it. You just you had to build trenches to get rid of it. There's just so much of it there. What is it? Blood. That's right. Blood. And these these cursed men, these cursed people, they see the sacrificial system up close. They see the Shekinah glory up close. They see all the blood, the death. They see all the atonement ceremony required for sin. This incredible typology. God makes the nation of Israel just fill the whole place with blood. There's blood everywhere. Gallons, hundreds and thousands of gallons of blood. And these guys' job is to burn the sacrifices or provide the wood, start the fire, and bring the water to wash away the blood and to clean the priests because the priests are covered with blood. Clean the feet. And the Gibeonites, you see, it's, they, they see this price, all of this death, and it's just a small, tiny little fraction of what it really represents. What does it represent? It represents the actual redemptive work of Jesus Christ. But the Gibeonites, they get to see it. They cut all the wood. They carry all the water. The sacrifice and the cleansing, that's their job. They are the cursed. The cursed have front row seats to the sacrificial typology. They work with fire and they work with water. Think about that for a second. Fire and water have a wonderful relationship. What is it? God uses it to kill. He uses it to kill. Yes, he does. Say it loud. Yes, he does. But specifically, he uses it to kill somebody. Who? Nephilim. That's right. He wants to kill Nephilim. And he kills the contaminated, the cursed. So put all the pieces together. The Gibeonites, they believed God's promises. They believed God's words. They know his words are true. They believed it. They say so. We believed. We heard and we believed. So the Gibeonites believed God's promises. What was God's promise? I'm going to kill the Gibeonites. They believed him. They believed those words. They knew his words were true. They knew they were being fulfilled. They knew they were cursed. They knew that they were going to be. Could you imagine as they're listening to Joshua read Genesis 9.25? They heard themselves again. They're in 34. They're in 9. They know they're the cursed. They know that they were wiped out with circumcision. But they're also, what do they got here? They got something really cool that excites them. You can see it excited them. They were not destined to be destroyed. They were destined to be what? Slaves. What's that mean? Is it better to be a living slave or a dead Gibeonite? They saw hope and mercy. They get to be alive. God cursed them, but they get to be servants. 
And they tell you this, they were destined for slavery or death. That was their choice. And they were terrorized and in dread of being utterly destroyed. And they respond with motives of self-preservation. That's what they did. They say so. Read the story again. They lie, they kick, they deceive, they lie some more, they do some more lying. And then they admit it all, completely forthcoming. There's no hesitation to tell Joshua why we lied to you and what our purpose was. And think about who they are. Mighty men. All of them mighty. Great fighters. We're scared of you. That's why I talk about Samson. Samson, I'm positive. I'm positive I can prove it. Samson was about five foot tall and 80 pounds. And people were afraid of him. Because he killed thousands and thousands with a bone. Extraordinary. Don't look at the cartoon. He's Woody Allen. or Who's the other guy I keep remembering? Wally Cox. That's who I remember. I'm old. But they lie. They kick. They deceive. They lie some more. They, and they, they have no hesitation to confess. They realized and they acknowledged that God's word was inviolable, his power invincible, and therefore nothing remained for them to do. They could not win. They could not survive. The only way they could survive is to cast themselves onto his goodness and justice because they believed he was also good and just. They, you see, the utter destruction is deserved. Instead, though, instead of utter destruction, what do they get? They get slavery. Yeah. Now, you might think that's bad, in which case you would be thinking wrongly. And some don't understand that. But the cursed Gibeonites had precisely the spirit and attitude that all cursed should have. Who are you? Who was I? We were cursed. And the Gibeonites figured it out. They had precisely the spirit and attitude that all cursed sinners are to come to Jesus Christ, God with. All cursed sinners need to be convinced of their cursed state. All of them need to be convinced that God's words of coming judgment are true. They need to be convinced of their utter deserved destruction. They need to be convinced that they are helpless. They're up against an omnipotent power. They need to cast themselves down upon His mercy, His goodness, His righteousness, and His justice. They need to submit without reservation to His divine will. They need to be ready to do what? That's us. This is us. Find yourself. Need to be ready to be a slave, to take his yoke upon themselves and be grateful for life, a life of service to Christ. And notice how pleased God is with the Gibeonites. He calls them his devoted person, his devoted persons, the Gibeonites. He protects them. He avenges them. He loves his cursed It's an incredible story, and next week we will do more of it.